We're back. And let's do some science topics here, starting with the fact that uh, here in America, uh, Allergan of Irvine and uh, Mentor of Santa Barbara, two uh, California companies, are going to again start producing silicone implants. Fourteen years after silicone breast implants were banned amid fears that they triggered connective tissue diseases and other problems, the Food and Drug Administration has now given approval for their being remarketed here in the United States. They are considered to look and feel more naturally than do the saline implants currently in use. New Scientist magazine quoted uh, Leroy Young. Dr. Young is a plastic surgeon from St. Louis. He noted that uh, this is long overdue and that the science shows the issues behind the ban are not a problem. This is, however, a qualified approval. Each of these two firms must follow 40,000 women with implants for 10 years, looking for potential complications ranging from suicide to cancer to effects on breastfeeding and the women's children. They must also track every implant sold, conduct lab studies of implants that rupture, and decide how to label them to better communicate any risks. And although we're, we're sure you would agree that uh, spraying chicken carcasses with viruses might sound crazy, but uh, if the viruses are harmless to humans but lethal to food poisoning bacteria, it could be a way of making food safer. Research done in the UK by Supa Salvac, the European consortium developing the technology, it's been noted that sprays containing a type of phage, that's a virus that only infects and kills certain strains of bacteria, uh, resulted in, well, after they sprayed 300 chicken carcasses, uh, the team investigating this noted that uh, salmonella contamination was reduced a thousandfold compared to traditional treatments. The, uh, the old Soviet Union uh, did a lot of this kind of work, and uh, apparently uh, with some success. I think that in the future we're going to see a lot more use of uh, viruses to combat bacteria. The science uh, seems pretty sound. We should note that it isn't uh, just the UK that's going ahead with this. Uh, the US Food and Drug Administration last August approved a cocktail of six viruses as a food additive to be sprayed on ready-to-eat meats. Let's catch up on some other science stories here. Uh, there was a great deal of talk uh, last year about uh, what was thought to be hobbits, small uh, primitive human beings, uh, fossils of which were located on the Indonesian island of Flores. On uh, further inspection, the science now seems to be indicating that these were simply uh, adult dwarf individuals and not a new species of, uh, of primitive humans. And then another story where uh, science meets politics. Several months back, a 227-page federal plan for contending with a possible flu pandemic envisioned social and economic chaos while placing much of the burden to contend with the disaster on local officials. We hope in 2007 uh, they will get their act together and plan a national response to what we're going to do if, uh, if there's another outbreak of human-to-human uh, -human transmissible bird flu. Recent estimates show that this uh, could kill 80 million or more people across the globe. In fact, some say even, you know, possibly much more than that. In 1918, the estimates are 50 million worldwide. That was uh, long before anybody could travel continent to continent on a jet aircraft. We note that yesterday's headlines include the news that bird flu appears to be spreading in Egypt with a tenth person dying yesterday. It's been noted that there are 18 human cases of bird flu in Egypt that have been confirmed, but Egypt does lie on a migratory route 
for wild birds. And of course, as a reminder, humans are capable of picking up bird flu on occasion. It's that uh, human flu spread easily from person to person that's the concern. It seems a certainty that at some point, uh, bird flu and human flu are going to swap genes and then batten down the hatches. The, uh, the tenth bird flu case that was reported in Egypt uh, represented the third member of an extended family to die of the deadly strain of H5N1 bird flu. It is presumed that all family members contracted uh, this virus from birds, and we certainly hope so. One uh, very uh, curious mystery of deep space that may be resolved in the next year or two is the fact that uh, NASA's Pioneer 10 and 11 space probes launched back in the 1970s have showed very slight anomalies in their position out near the edge of the solar system. It's curious that both these spacecraft are on opposite ends of the solar system, having gone off in different directions, and yet they both have uh, shown this anomaly. And since then, people at JPL and elsewhere in NASA have noted that other space probes have exhibited unexplained changes in speed, most recently with the Galileo and NEAR spacecraft, as well as the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft, which pl flew past the Earth and all showed bigger-than-expected boosts in speed. The big question is, does this represent something wrong with our understanding of modern physics? Some think so and believe that uh, these spacecraft are going to require a modified law of gravity. Not everyone is convinced, however. Uh, noted Miles Standish, who calculates trajectories of solar system bodies for Jet Propulsion Laboratory, this is like a farmer in Louisiana seeing a light in the sky and immediately screaming, UFO, whereas it could be a number of other things. And uh, Pioneer 10 and 11, back in the 1970s, were followed by Voyagers 1 and 2. Both those spacecraft are getting out near the heliopause between uh, where, well, basically the edge of the very, very edge of our solar system and interstellar space. Sometime in 2007, we're going to come back and talk about that story. To, uh, to produce this show each week, we try and read an awful lot of material. Things like the Utney Reader, Mother Jones, The Economist. Uh, we certainly rely on the web. The, the reported demise of the modern newspaper seems to be premature. We're not sure how we could get by without reading the Sacramento Bee and occasionally the San Francisco Chronicle uh, every week. Uh, not to mention, of course, the Sacramento News and Review. But I um, was quite pleased to take a look at The Economist. At the end of the year, they had a special holiday double issue where I think a lot of the uh, feature articles they've been sort of saving up, they publish. And uh, one of the most excellent things I've read in The Economist in quite a while, or any science magazine for that matter, was their article about meteorites. The article explains how using radioactive dating, we can, uh, we can date meteorites back to 4.56 billion years ago, at which point our star was lighting up with fusion energy. But, fascinatingly, uh, you can go back with the uh, dust grains that are parts of these, um, these meteorites and, and realize that these predate our solar system. Among those particles are diamonds, uh, which are thought to be the products of supernova explosions. Bits of uh, silicon carbide are thought to have come from red giant stars. By examining these minerals, we're able to get various carbon ratios and... Uh, and have decided that dozens, if not hundreds, of red giants and supernova seem to have contributed to the primitive solar nebula, which led to the formation of our solar system.
One isotope in particular suggests that a supernova did go off just as the solar nebula was forming. In fact, it may have been the shock wave from this exploding star that led to the nebula, which is us, the whole solar system, starting to condense in the first place. Fascinating stuff, and I recommend that you uh, to read the article yourself in The Economist. An article in the same uh, issue about the battle for Mongolia's soul. Mongolia, of course, is precariously perched between the two giant nations of Russia and China. Mongolia is the least densely populated nation on Earth. In an effort to retain its independence from those two giants, uh, the Mongolians have put out feelers to Japan and the United States. In fact, the Bush administration has been delighted by Mongolia's support for its military adventurism in Iraq, which include the dispatching of 200 support troops. It was noted that this was the first time Mongolian troops have been stationed in Iraq since Genghis Khan's grandson, Helugu, conquered Baghdad. Article notes that in 2006, the Mongolians poured millions of dollars into celebrating the 800th anniversary of Genghis's unification of the Mongol tribes into a single state, which became, still, the largest empire the world has ever known. I had a chance to visit Mongolia back in 1991 in the last year, literally, of the Soviet Union, and, uh, and perhaps in some future program I can talk a bit about that. And not that I necessarily have that much to say. I do want to say that Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, is without question the most boring town I have ever been in in my entire life. Earlier this year, it was noted in, uh, in New Scientist magazine that uh, the DNA analysis of 25,000 people have uh, shown that quite a few people of Caucasian uh, ancestry are in fact descendants of the 13th century warlord Genghis Khan. And, yet, and yes, it is Genghis, not Genghis Khan. But I do love the quote from accounting professor Tom Robinson of Palmetto Bay, Florida, one of the people who apparently is a descendant of Genghis. He said, quote, I think I do have a certain number of administrative skills, but I haven't done any conquering per se. All right, and at this juncture, I think we need to do some more science. And to help us do that is one of our science correspondents, who's not been on the show for a while, but thankfully returns after a long hiatus, Dr. Whitney Lehman. Welcome back, Whitney. Thanks, Doug. Um, I have been reading uh, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which has reminded us of previous conversations you and I have had on this program about how we raise cattle in this country. Some disturbing conversations we had a couple years back. This has reinforced my idea that uh, things are not right in America when it regards to raising beef. Uh, no, the factory farm environment is not helpful to anyone. Humans, animals, not a very good way to do things. I would recommend this book to, to anyone, and I'm, I'm really sorry to not catch a Mr. Pollan's appearance here at UCD here back on November 29th. I was unfortunately, uh, in this case, leaving the country. But uh, we hope to get him on in the future and talk about this river of corn, he describes, that uh, leaves Iowa and the American Midwest, uh, which the federal government, through its policies, keeps artificially low in price which we then use as a cheap feed source, so cheap that no one could possibly buy corn at that price, and we shove it down the guts of our cattle. Yes, I've heard some people say that 
cattle to this day are still mostly grass-fed, and they're finished with corn to, to make them more marbled and flavorful, more palatable to Americans. But I don't think that's actually true. I think cows are started on corn very quickly after they're taken away from their mothers. Um, they're given hormones and sub-therapeutic doses of antibiotics so that they can reach slaughter weight more quickly because dollars are the bottom line of factory farming. It's alleged they started on grass, but really it's a corn operation from very early. Uh, that's my understanding of it, yes. Well, I got to tell you, I just was down in Central America where they, where they actually feed cattle grass, imagine that, and I really thought the beef tasted great. It tasted like beef is supposed to taste like. The chicken was unbelievably good, which I think is a reflection I suspect, to some degree, in the fact they're not being raised on these monster farms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't, I can't really comment on that because I've never tasted grass-fed beef or any other grass-fed animals. But, uh, I mean, I, I've heard certainly that Americans prefer the taste of corn-fed beef, but that's possibly because they've never had grass-fed beef. Well, yeah, according to Pollen's book, the FDA actually so sets up the classification that you're rewarded for having this corn-fed, fatty, marbled beef. That's considered superior. I'm not exactly sure how the USDA um, inspection system works, but they do grade it based on color and fat content, um, you know, the cut of the meat, the look of the meat. And um, I'm not sure really how grass-fed beef compares to corn-fed beef, but I'm just, you know, as, as a wild guess, I would say corn-fed beef is probably, you know, has a more marbled texture. It's fattier, and certainly the cows don't get exercise, they reach slaughter weight in a year with their hormone button and their corn-fed diet. And I'm under the impression that it takes about four years for um, grass-fed beef to reach slaughter weight. So uh, they're more mature. I assume they're more muscular and maybe more tough. A lot of factory farmed cows don't really ever move around very much on feedlots. Well, I just drove by a feedlot yesterday, and after reading this book, I was reminded and disgusted by this spectacle of cattle standing basically ankle deep in their own feces mm -hmm. on this landscape that's just, just a giant mound of cow dung. Yeah. No place to go. It's, it's apparently so mm -hmm. concentrated, they don't even want it for fertilizer. It burns things. It's so much nitrogen. No, that is true. Um, and certainly... The question is what happens when that washes off and gets into surface water supplies or in the case of the um, E. coli 157H7 outbreak um, in I think it was Salinas Valley. The theory I think is that some wild boars, um, there are feral animals, I guess mostly wild boars in that area that tracked um, feces from a feedlot uh, to uh, the spinach fields. And I don't think they've finished the investigation yet, but I think that's um, that's been... I think the theory so far is how the spinach got contaminated. Well, you've been researching this, I know, and I guess probably the verdict isn't in fully, but it seems to me that one of the great scandals of modern America is that we are just shoving antibiotics down these cattle, partly because they're not supposed to be eating all this grain, and it gives them problems, and they're in these crowded feedlots, so what they do is just shovel massive amounts of antibiotic uh, down their throats, which means they're pooping out antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And now, in this in this outbreak with the with the um, the spinach, did we did we implicate antibiotic resistance in those in those E. coli, as far as we know, or is that still being looked at? No, uh, supposedly there is antibiotic resistance in E. coli one five seven H seven, and I think it was Michael Pollan maybe who first theorized that since grain is um, you know used as this cattle feed, it has a side effect that supposedly increases the acidity of um, the stomach of ruminants and 
the idea that I've heard is that um, in this really acidic environment, E. coli 157 um, maybe developed and acclimated, or maybe it was always there at low numbers, but a more acidic environment allowed it to thrive. It produces a very strong toxin, which is how people get sick and in some case die of renal failure. There is a literature paper by Meng Zhao um, and S. Doyle, uh, I have the reference, that E. coli 157H7 and uh, E. coli 157N and M are both antibiotic resistant to several antibiotics. Well, everybody knew. I mean, anyone in medicine, anyone in biology, anyone in bacteriology knows it's only a matter of time. Yeah, the Union of Concerned Scientists has, um, uh, they have information on their website and they have written articles and um, information on the problem of antibiotic resistance, mostly coming from factory farming, uh, cattle farming in particular, because antibiotics are given at sub-therapeutic doses. And a lot of it is supposedly to kill off some of the natural bacterial growth in the systems of the ruminants so that they can absorb food, more nutrients, and reach slaughter weight more quickly, but also, too, because I think living in these close proximities um, on factory farms, chickens, pigs, and cows, they are more likely to uh, pass infections from one, in, one to another, and I'm sure the antibiotics are used for that as well. And so uh, we have massive use of antibiotics. I think Union of Concerned Scientists said an estimated 70% of the antibiotics and related drugs produced in this country are used for non-therapeutic purposes, such as accelerating animal growth and compensating for overcrowded and unsanitary conditions on large-scale confinement facilities known as factory farms. This translates to about 25 million pounds of antibiotics and related drugs fed every year to livestock for non-therapeutic purposes, almost eight times the amount given to humans to treat disease. Yeah, I think anyone who's in healthcare will be shocked to realize that we're trying to be careful to not generate antibiotic resistance in, in, in people that we treat. And, and here, here, the, here American agriculture is just doing it on a gigantic scale. Yeah, um, Howard Lyman, who wrote the book uh, Mad Cowboy, who was himself um, a rancher in the past, I, I remember reading in his book that he said he had to change antibiotics about you know once a month or once every couple of months. To, they stopped doing the job it's shocking. quickly. It's yeah, shocking. It really is. Well, in the future, I want to talk more about this as the as the story comes in about uh, this contamination of of the spinach fields when the verdict's in. I, I got to say, I may not be quite ready to give up beef yet, but I don't want to eat this corn-fed product, this antibiotic-laced product, this hormone-laced product. I would like to just eat grass-fed beef. Do you have any suggestions how I and others might be able to do that? Um, I would say just go go cold turkey and stop eating meat altogether. <laughs> I've well, been a vegetarian for me twenty two years, so. Um, but I, you know, you can probably try Whole Foods. I assume you can get grass fed beef somewhere in California. I I think I think it is produced here, if I remember right, maybe in Owens Valley or something. But um, all right, well, there there's I guess a homework project for myself. Yeah, I need to bring to, to you the around. listening audience data on how we can do this because uh, I'm disgusted by what I read in the Omnivore's Dilemma. Yeah. And I think it's time for a change. Yeah, and try some fake meat products. There, um, there are a lot of good ones these days. They don't taste um, as bad as the brewer's yeast um, <laughs> <laughs> meat substitutes of the 1970s. Well, Dr. Whitney Lima, thank you for coming back on the show. Let's let's hear more about this in 2007. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And maybe we can talk about environmental effects and global warming effects of uh, factory farming and cattle grazing next time. Well, I I, I do want to do exactly that. So we shall. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll be back after a short break. is the life for me land spreading out so far and wide keep manhattan just give me that countryside new york is where i'd rather stay i get allergic smelling hay i just adore a penthouse view darling i love you but give me park avenue 